morning in a very Pastor Jason-like way. That duo of scripture reading was fantastic. Um, <laughs> if you know Pastor Jason, that's, that's his little go-to. When something's really good, it is fantastic. Well, it's good to be with you guys. My name is Myung, one of the pastors here. Um, can I just say, I'm really grateful that I get to teach God's word to our church body. I know it's not often. It's in a rotation, but really excited, really excited and really privileged and really humbled to be in this position. So I appreciate you guys listening, taking notes even, and uh, just, just being able to teach God's word. And hopefully I represent who he is very well. Um, I think if you guys have been listening or reading any news this past week or the past couple of weeks, I think it's hard to, um, it's hard. It's just been a sobering week of news. Anywhere you turn, it hasn't been much good of anything. Uh, it's just been hardships here, over there, anywhere you um, look and see. And so I thought it was very fitting it's a very timely passage that we've gotten to chapter 40. But as a way of unpacking some of the hardships that our world is facing, I wanted to read these statistics to you from the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. It's a mouthful. They have done a study where they are showing you where all the armed conflicts in the world are taking place and how many there are in the world. So, the first statistics that they mention is that more than 45 armed conflicts are happening in the Middle East and North Africa right now. That there are more than 35 armed conflicts taking place in Africa. There are 21 armed conflicts in Asia, seven armed conflicts in Europe, and six armed conflicts in Latin America. I think this is such a sobering statistic that I looked upon this week. Conflicts are nothing new in the human history. I think we all know from our history class that conflicts is all around us. It's, it's never been the case that we've had a long extended period of, of, of great peace. But as I'm preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help hearing and seeing the news of the old slash new war taking place between Hamas, the Palestinian Sunni Islamic militant group, and the nation of Israel. Thousands and thousands of lives, young and old, being lost and affected by the war. The battle actually is currently taking place nearly the same regions as the passages in Isaiah that we're learning about. It's eerie and heartbreaking to see and hear people fighting, kidnapped, and dying exactly near the places um, the past few weeks that we are studying. I also know that there are people in our church affected by the ongoing war between Ukraine and Russia. So I find today's passage in Isaiah a passage about the people of God, exiled and displaced, a very timely passage, which I believe helps us see that the only true hope we have amidst all this chaos is in Jesus. I did want to take a moment just to pray. You know, we can't just see a statistic like we just saw and not be praying we might not be facing something immediate um, in our vicinity, but we know that there's brokenness around us even here, but as much as is there brokenness all over the world. So I did want to take time just to pray. So if you guys can pray with me. Lord, we praise you for you are good. We praise you because you are all powerful. 
we praise you because you are all loving. And Lord, in the midst of such chaos, lives being lost all over the place, whether it's wars or even earthquakes that are killing thousands around the world, Lord, we know that your heart is for your children and for the people to be saved. So Lord, we lift up particularly the nation of Israel and Gaza. Lord, there are your children, men and women, and children that love you in Israel. There are men and children and women that love you in Gaza. And Lord, we ask that you would have a special hand of of care and grace and love and mercy and peace over them, Lord. And Lord, that ultimately, even through such devastation that you would make your name made known, that you would save, and that you would draw people to yourself, and that those who need to repent of their sins will, Lord, fall at the foot of the cross. Lord, we pray for uh, the brokenness that we see even in our own lives, whether that's health or brokenness in our own families. Lord, as much as we see how good you are and how caring you are and that you are really the only hope of peace and that you would um, bless our church body, Lord, with the peace that only you can provide. So help us as we um, learn about the passage today that we would see how good you are, how powerful you are, how loving you are, and that we would have great hope. And Lord, with that hope that we would um, take it to, uh, to our families, to our city, and to the world, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we, before we get to today's passage, there are two main themes that have led us to chapter 40. So it's a survey. We've been going through a survey of Isaiah, so we're not going through every chapter, every verse, but we're taking large chunks at a time. And we're in chapter 40. So you're like, how did they get to chapter 40 already? It must have been a few years that they've been studying. No, it hasn't, but we're in chapter 40. So I want to catch you guys up on how we got here. The lead up to chapter 40, there are two main themes. The first theme is this, that the people of God will be judged for their sins. The sins of the leaders and the sins of the people. The chosen nation of God has chased after their own comforts and desires instead of worshiping God and delighting in who he is. And they will be justly judged for this. The second theme is this, is that within the mess of sin and brokenness, we continue to see that there's a message of hope, a hope of a Messiah, a king who will restore all things and bring about a new Jerusalem. We know that this message is ultimately about Jesus. And so the first theme, you might be wondering, okay, so what was so egregious that they did, God is bringing them to this type of judgment? If you're with us for any length of period of time, you know that there's been a host of, of mess that the people of God have caused. The list, I'm going to list out here a number of sins that were committed by God's chosen people that led to the judgment. I'm going to put it on the list here. The first is that the rebellion took place against God and his children. Wild animal-like behavior without understanding, as it was described. 
other sinful depravity, stubborn persistence to continue rebelling, religious hypocrisy was a big one, sexual sins, murder, thievery, oppression of the weak, and idol worship. And unfortunately, these sins were not just a one-time event. They weren't just a one and done. It happened over and over and over again. King after king after king who did, as the Bible calls it, what was right in their own eyes. Kings who continued to rebel against God and made poor decisions that were propelled by the fear of man, not by the fear of God, that culminated into political alliances that they thought would protect them and would bring them peace. But rather, we hear and see that it actually did the opposite. It will lead them to their judgment fate. Here's a list of kings who reigned over Judah during this time of warning and judgment. Hezekiah, as you might remember, Hezekiah was the king that we talked about in the previous chapters, succeeded by King Manasseh. Amon, Josiah, Jehoahaz, which he only reigned for three months. Jehoiakim, and then the short reign of King Jehoiachin, which is also three months. And then King Zedekiah, where we see the attacks of Assyria in chapter 8 and 36. And ultimately Babylon, chapter 40, and 2 Kings, 24 to 25. The kingdom, Babylon being so, the kingdom which served as a vehicle for the fall of Jerusalem, a nation chosen by God. And secondly, the theme of the hope of a Messiah. We can't forget that. That was sprinkled throughout all of chapter 1 through 39 and moving forward. A deliverer, a king who will restore all things and bring about a new Jerusalem. A king who is described as a child, born as a child in Isaiah 9, a king who will be like no other, bringing restoration and redemption, described in Isaiah chapter 14 and chapter 27. Now here's an interesting tidbit. We're in chapter 40, so you might be wondering, okay, it's been a long time. If you follow chronologically what's going on, it's been about two centuries from chapters 1 through chapter 40. Now remember, Isaiah is a prophet providing this warning to the people of Jerusalem, sent by a messenger to God's people. Isaiah worked tirelessly to warn God's people about the impending judgment that came from the continuous rebellion. He included himself also as part of that rebelling people. Now, chapter 40 is the start of a turning point. It's fascinating. It's with historical understanding that this was written to people who have now been living through the Babylonian exile. These were people who lost their identity and were without hope. And because Isaiah lived in the 8th century, and the writing speaking from a, is speaking from a perspective, period, addressing people that were in exile in the 6th century, that leaves us with a needed clarification on who the author is. Did, uh, is this Isaiah living this long? No, he did not live this long. He was not that old. And so two main schools of thought. The first school of thought is that Isaiah is the only author. Isaiah is speaking prophetically about all things that is to happen for God's chosen nation, speaking ahead, looking prophetically into the future. Some of the rationale that backs this school of thought is that the New Testament writers 
never mention another writer for the book of Isaiah in the many times the book of Isaiah is quoted. So if you read the New Testament, Isaiah is quoted all over the place. Never do the New Testament authors mention any other author besides Isaiah. One of my favorite stories, actually, in Acts 8, where Philip teleports and helps the Ethiopian eunuch. This is just a heads up. If you're, if you're a kid listening for the first time, there is teleportation in Scripture in Acts 8. That is what I believe. Um, you guys can go read it for yourself and see if teleportation exists in Acts 8. But it is Philip teleporting to help an Ethiopian eunuch understand the writing in Isaiah. Specifically, he says that this man, on his way back home, was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And you're like, okay, well, 53, that's after chapter 40, right? Yes. And Philip is saying Isaiah and claiming that Isaiah is the author. The second rationale that backs that there is only one author is that the most well-known Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, credits only Isaiah as the author for the book of Isaiah in his historic Jewish antiquities, book 11, chapter 1. Not as fun as reading about the teleportation, but if you want to see that he only believes that there's one author, you guys can read his historic book, The Jewish Antiquities. Now, there are other school of thought. The other school of thought is that there are multiple authors. Well, how do we get there? Isaiah is the main author, is what we're claiming here in this rationale, and that his message continued on by the writing of his disciples. And we can see passages of Isaiah passing on his message to his disciples after getting rejected by the Jewish leaders. So once he was rejected, he moved on. He kept discipling his disciples, and they're saying that he, they continued writing the rest of Isaiah. You can read about this in Isaiah 8, 16, Isaiah chapter 20, 10 through 12, or Isaiah chapter 30, 8 through 9. But from this passage and this, today's teaching, I'm going from the perspective that Isaiah is a sole author. And hopefully you guys can jive with that. If not, just shake your head and think that there's multiple authors. This leads us to our main idea for today, which I titled, God Revives a Hopeless Nation. How fitting, right? We're looking at the nations all around us in the world, and we're seeing an, an exiled nation being revived. Let's jump right in. The first two verses shows us that God begins to revive his children through the comforts of his promises. God of comfort. Verses 1 through 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. I want to do what they did, but I don't have like the voice changes that I could do, um, the duo here. So comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let me point out a few things for you from these verses. The first thing is that God begins to revive his children, a, cho a nation that he loves, a chosen nation by giving them an imperative. Comfort, comfort my people. A very emotional language. God, who is describing himself as a comforter, giving his comfort, telling Isaiah to write as an imperative, comfort my people. 
and is tender towards his children through all the junk, the mess, and dumpster full of idolatrous behavior. After all that, God is still saying, you are my people, and now receive my comfort. And as the verse continues, we see that this comfort is not fluff. He's not throwing cotton candy at you and saying, be comforted. It's the real deal. There's substance. It comes from the forgiveness of sins and a restored relationship with God that, has, that was talked about in Isaiah 1, Isaiah 43. Comfort that comes from sins that are like scarlet, like snow. And comfort that comes from a God who is remembering their sins no more. That is true comfort. We also see from verses 1 through 2 that the warfare and exile has come to an end. What good, how good news. It's amazing. The exile's over. The warfare is done. It's been a long time. You actually read it in Jeremiah's prophetic letter to the exiled, telling the Jewish people to make yourself at home and settle in. This is from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. A little pause there. Who did the exiling here? Who has the power? It was God. It was not these strong nations that ultimately did this. It was God who was in power and in charge. He continues, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. A little curious, right? Because last week, when Tim was preaching about the Assyrians, we learned that when the Assyrians came, it was a lot more treacherous. It wasn't this type of passage about having families settling in. We learned that there was an immediate threat to the physical life of the people of Judah. But under Babylon, it was different. Very different. Under Babylon, different in the sense that people of God exiled to a new place had a relatively good life and a prosperous life. Good and prosperous, right? They were allowed to work. They were allowed to get married. They were allowed to start a family. The American dream. There it is. Under Babylon, they were allowed to have the American dream. Now, under Assyria, it was different. Under Babylon, wow, very different. Under Babylon, I would like to think of it as a more of a slow loss of hope that came from the loss of spiritual and emotional identity of who they were. They lost their identity. It wasn't a physical loss of life, but it was a loss of their identity. Another thing to point out from verses 1 through 2 is that God begins to revive his children because he is a promise keeper. He refers to this nation, the rebellious and sinful nation, as my people. That's how he addresses them. My people. It's a covenantal term that God uses. Biblical scholar Alec Modier says in his commentary of Isaiah that this is a covenantal term. I love that. God has not forgotten his people and reminds them that they are his children. Over and over, as they sin, it all culminates 
to this point, chapter 40, a turning point. The exile is over, and he's reminding them who they are. His children, I'm going to give you my comfort, and I'm going to take care of you. So I love this passage starting with identity, God addressing the identity of people who have lost their identity during the long exile. It's often the case that a conquering nation enforcing or slowly restricts a people group's way of culture and life, removing their identity. I remember my parents telling me about some Korean culture, some Korean history, where um, during World War II, Japan had come and had taken over the land of Korea. And they they started to change everything. They would rename things, retitle things, change the language. And slowly, over time, it was restricting them enough to where their identity, their cultural identity of who they were as a people were being taken away. I believe that's similar to what's, what, what's being explained here. They're, being, they're in exile. The God of, people of God are in exile for so long that they've lost sight and identity of who they are. It leads us to this reality that this was news given to God's chosen people who became hopeless after a 70-year exile and displacement. Jeremiah once again tells us in 29 verse 10, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promises concerning you to restore you to this place. That promise is coming to fruition. It's, It's happening. That's how he's reviving his people because God is a promise keeper. Moving on, verses 3 through 11 paints us a beautiful picture of what God's doing. If you're like me, as maybe as I'm getting older, so a little funny story. While I was at the uh, Harbor Network conference, I got this a lot. Once at the airport, traveling with Aaron, where they thought that I was his son. And then at the, <laughs> at the Harbor Network conference, when I was walking with a, a gentleman that was there, um, a volunteer leader at their, at their church, talking to him, and he mentioned, he goes, you know, you probably don't remember because you weren't around in 2001 when this happened. I said, wow, you think I'm 22 years old right now. (laughs) I didn't mention to him how old I was or how many kids I had, but all that to say, as I'm getting older, I'm appreciating things that, like paintings, art and paintings are growing on me. And I love that um, God created uh, this way of, of sharing stories and expressing our feelings. And as I'm getting older, I love paintings, and I also love taking pictures, because I think done in a good way, it ca- it's, it's a snapshot of a story um, that can be told in an art form. And it's beautiful. And I think verses 3 through 11, it paints this amazing picture of who God is, what God is doing, who we are, along with what we're called to do as a response to his grand plans, thus continuing to revive his children. So let's allow the scripture to paint this picture for us. The first picture is from verses three to five. I'm actually going to ask you guys to close your eyes and listen and try to imagine, imagine this as as a picture or a painting. It reads, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. 
The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of our Lord will appear. And all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't that paint a beautiful picture? It starts by painting a picture of people in exile. Imagine you've been in exile in a foreign land, described as the wilderness and a desert. This, I believe, doesn't describe the physical place they were in. Babylon, not a wilderness or desert. It's very developed. What I think this is saying, what I believe is that it's describing the state of the people. The state of the people were one of wilderness and desert. And from there, you're given a message. A voice is crying out, saying, God is coming to aid his people, and nothing will stand in his way. I love this description from Alec Modier. The ancient picture of the Lord coming to his people's aid with the practice of constructing processional ways. And then he continues on by saying, the Lord's road is to be straight, level, and free of obstacle. He will arrive without fail, travel without difficulty, and be undelayed by hindrances. There's nothing that is going to stand in his way. I don't know what picture you drew in your mind as you were listening to the verses, but it's like a Formula One race car just driving down a straight path. It's coming for you, and there's nothing that is going to stop it. And when it... And when he comes in glory, I love this part also, it would not only be for the people in exile. It's not just for a select few, but it will be for all humanity to see, past, present, and future. When God's glory comes, it is for everyone to see. Now, the second picture that is painted is verse, verses 6 through 8. You can close your eyes again and listen. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. A picture of grass and flower in beauty, but also a picture of grass and flowers withering away. I think it paints a contrasting picture here between people and God. People and God. People are described with this fleeting frailty, like grass or like flowers. Maybe you know this too well. Maybe you don't have a green thumb, and anything green dies at your hand. Maybe that's you where the beauty is here one day and gone the next. It's like the cherry blossom trees. If you blink, the beautiful flowers on the cherry blossom trees will be gone. On the contrast, God is described as an all-powerful, the one who with his breath gives life and also takes away life from the grass and flowers. Unlike the frailty of who we are, like grass or flowers, we learn that God and his word stands forever without change. How do you guys feel when I say that God's word stands forever and without change? 
Verses 9 through 11 paints us the third picture. If you close your eyes and listen. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and his power establishes rule. His wages are with him, and his ward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. He gently leads those that are nursing. Verses 9 through 11, another beautiful picture, gives us a picture of a response of a people who are welcoming a king. That's like a procession of sorts, right? Welcoming a king. Go high up on the mountain. Raise a voice. Raise a voice and shout. Don't be afraid. Here is your God. Scream. Scream it out. This is good news. You might be thinking, okay, what are, what are some pictures that you were painting? Maybe if you're like me, the first thing that you thought of a procession of shouting something was the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Okay, maybe that's cheesy, but the parade where celebrities or honor guests come down the streets in a grand procession, lifted high and above in their parade floats. High and above, right? You never see Santa Claus at the end at ground level. He is always waving his hand high from a parade float. That's not the case here. In this procession, we get a picture of a gentle shepherd who gathers and carries the lambs in his arms. We get a picture of a shepherd gently leading and carrying those that need to be carried. This is the upside-down kingdom we believe as Christians. An all-powerful God who, with his breath, can give and take away life, described as a shepherd gently leading his flock. Do you get those two images? It is incredible. One of all power, yet one of all gentleness and care. Jesus is the king that this passage is talking about. Let's not be fooled. There's no one else. Jesus is this king. Unlike Adam, who was exiled from the garden because of his sins, and the nation of Judah exiled as a judgment for their sins, Jesus was sinless. But because his love for us left his throne and entered a broken world, thus becoming an exile by his choice. During his exile, he was rejected, afflicted, and ultimately crucified on the cross. And at the cross is where we see the greatest glory of God, as mentioned in verse 5. And unlike Adam and the nation of Judah, Jesus never lost his identity and strayed from his mission. He finished the job. He rose again after three days, conquering sin and death. He is in exile no more but ruling and reigning at the right hand of God in heaven. That's good news, church. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you feel like an exile in your own family. Maybe you've always felt like an exile in your own family. Maybe you feel like an exile in your extended family. Or you feel like an exile at work. Or maybe you feel like an exile even within yourself 
because of your mental or physical ailments. Whatever you're going through, here's the truth I want you to grasp. Please take this with you. Jesus is all-powerful. He loves you. And he is the ultimate ruler who is calling you and his people to himself out of exile, out of the sin and death. He is calling you out of exile. But here's the kicker. I know that's good news. But the kicker is this, is that even as new creation, as children of God, we live in a physically still broken world. And I think that's all over, all around us. And for the time being, this is going to continue to be the case. We live in a broken world because this is not our final destination. But we don't live as captives. We don't live as the displaced. We don't live as the exile. I love Paul's language because we live, therefore, as ambassadors for Christ. And what are we doing? We're living as ambassadors for Christ, appealing to those around us to be reconciled to God. Yes, we are maybe, technically speaking, living as exiles, not in a foreign land. But our identity is secure. We know who we are. We know who the king of kings is. And we are living as ambassadors for Christ, sharing that good news and good message. So what's our response? What is our response? Church, the message, the response is simple. The message is simple. Be revived. As the people of Israel were revived, God's chosen nation were revived at the message of chapter 40, what I'm asking as a response for our church is to be revived. Not revived by our own power or strength, by the work of Jesus. The people of Judah were not brought out of exile by their strength, not by their good singing or shouting on the mountaintops, but by the grace of God. So we also are revived by the grace of God and the power of God. So here are three practical applications you could take with you to be revived. First is this. Be revived by being reminded of your identity in Jesus. Who are you? Who are you? You're a new creation reconciled to God through Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 tells us. You have a new heart, a heart of stone that's been removed and a heart of flesh placed in as Jeremiah tells us. Be revived, secondly, by being comforted by Jesus. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. He is giving us his comfort. And who? Who again is doing the work? Isaiah 51 tells us, I am he who comforts you. Let God comfort you. And number three, As revived people, share the good news of Jesus. We don't share the good news of Jesus from a dead state. We don't live this life in a dead state. You're made alive in Christ. So from a revived state, we prepare the way. Are you guys familiar with that phrase, prepare the way? Does that sound familiar? Yes, a lot of head nodding. Well, John the Baptist prepare the way in the New Testament, the Gospels. And when he prepared the way, what did he do? He preached a kingdom of God, and he preached repentance. 
he shared the good news. So much like John the Baptist, from a revived state, we're asking, I'm asking you guys as a, as a believer, as children of God, live as ambassadors and prepare the way. Continue to prepare the way. You know where you're going. Help others get there and prepare the way. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you that, Lord, you and you alone, by your power and grace, can truly revive a hopeless nation and people without hope. Lord, I think we can confess that myself and all of us were once hopeless. And, to, and still today, through the hills and valleys, Lord, I think we can find ourselves hopeless. And so, Lord, would you remind us who we are? Would you revive us once again? And from a revived state, would we shout on the mountaintops, Lord, how good you are? Help us to have opportunities to share your good news. Help us to have a heart to see the dead come to life. And Lord, help us to live as a right representation of who you are as ambassadors of you. Lord, we pray that there are many hopeless out there. And we watch the news and we're hopeless. We might watch the news today and find ourselves to be hopeless. I ask that you would help us, Lord, to find hope again today. And that we would pray that you would bring hope through your power and through your promises. A hope to the nations all over the world, Lord. We love you. We give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen.